Welcome to Voices from the Past, a podcast from Plymouth Plantation. I'm your host, Hillary Goodnow, and fall is here in southeastern Massachusetts. Winter's right around the corner, so today we're speaking with our blacksmiths and colliers, uh, Mark Atchison and Matteo Brault, about making fuel for the fire for the coming winter. So welcome to our podcast, you guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So for our listeners who don't know what a collier is, um, sort of fuel has to start somewhere. So can you tell us a little bit about what a collier is and what their job would have been in New Plymouth? Well, we're, we're doing an English uh, tradition, obviously, and so um, this comes from an English origin. And um, f- an English person nowadays would think a collier was a, um, a mineral coal dealer. But originally, they were charcoal dealers, and uh, before that, they were charcoal makers. Um, there was a lot of charcoal used for industry, and, and even at one time, it was uh, burned in households in England until they started running out of wood. So the collier was the guy that supplied that uh, charcoal. And we do it here um, be, uh, for lots of different reasons. Um, it is to serve us as fuel for our blacksmith shop, and, um, and we do that because we don't have records of them importing um, mineral coal to Plymouth. Was mineral coal very expensive? Well, no, actually. It was pretty cheap, but um, just, the, just the fact that they would have to import it mm-hmm. uh, would, would make it less accessible. And uh, the nice thing is that um, we do have some records, not about not from Plymouth uh, directly, but from uh, early English settlements. Uh, there's a a place up in Newfoundland where uh, they the black they made charcoal for their blacksmith, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was one of the fishing settlements up there, a, a place called Cupper's Cove. I think it's called Cupid's Cove nowadays, but. Um, that predates Plymouth, and um, and Plymouth was may have been a similar situation because um, it, it there's no record of importing mineral coal, mm-hmm. which is the the standard fuel during the 17th century for a blacksmith. Do you think that part of the reason why they weren't importing mineral coal is because they saw that the landscape was abundant with trees that they could hypothetically make charcoal, or was was charcoal making such a specialized skill that someone off the street like Edward Winslow or Isaac Allerton would have had no idea how to even start? Well, um, that, that's a really good question because uh, that uh, uh, I've, I've uh, uh, puzzled over quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that generally most trades, even rural trades, were learned in a traditional way, and that was by some sort of apprenticeship, and uh, charcoal making, uh, you know, the work of a collier would have fit into that pattern. Um, the, you know, we have examples of um, them in, uh, bringing over a, a salt maker. We have examples of things like that. Uh, they employed uh, sawyers here. We do not have a record of them um, hiring or or uh, employing a collier, and and it's um, it, it's kind of a tricky question. Um, I um, 
I usually try and dodge. Um, but it's one of those things that eventually we'll find um, that detail in some original document. A lot of times that's the way it happens is we, we, we jump the gaps in the, um, the documentary and information we have and then discover uh, along the way that um, there was a, a document or there was a detail that supports uh, the speculation that we came up with. So um, that's what we're hoping to find. So without these source materials yet discovered about whether or not they were making charcoal in Plymouth or whether they were importing mineral coal or wooden charcoal from England, we have a program here at Plymouth Plantation called Charcoal Burn. We just did it two weeks ago. Um, what is the purpose behind, behind that presentation that our artisan department does? Well, it's making fuel for our program, mm -hmm. and that's the way we interpret it. And um, the, Mateo and I um, largely uh, run the program, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's uh, from start to finish making charcoal. So we cut the wood, and we dry it, and it's a year-round project because the wood has to be prepared and and stacked and dried, and then um, we have to um, make all the preparations, build the pit, and fire it. And then we the the last thing we do is uh, we actually carry it back down to the blacksmith shop, and we use it in our program. In the in the seventeenth century English village, the forge in the village. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, and so. Um, it's it's one of those nice programs where we we are able to to um, to see the um, the beginning of the program and the end. Mm -hmm. You know, we we it comes around full circle. Uh, we speculate that that's what they did, and so we make the charcoal and then use it. And along the way, it's a, a process of discovery. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the process? You say we come full circle, sort of from cutting the wood to bringing the charcoal down to the forge. Can you walk us through the different steps of that process? How would you describe it, Mateo? Well, the first step is that we, we need to process hardwoods like oak, maple, beech, chestnut in the period. And we use mostly branch wood and... Uh, we kind of interpret that a little bit because a lot of the timber that they're felling for their houses, this branch wood that's left over, you know, they're using the trunks as house parts, but the branch wood is useful for fuel. And so our first step is to process that, and then we stack it, we dry it, hopefully for a year, but oftentimes less than that, our time is just so... Uh, sparse mm -hmm. um, but once we have that dried out then we uncover last year's pit and we sift through all the coal we grate it and we uh, put it in these uh, three bushel bags that act as a measurement for us so we know exactly how much we have and we send those back to the forge to be used as fuel but once you have that wood dried, you can start mounding it in a uh, in ordered uh, 
mound except we leave the center of it hollow and we build like a triangular tower almost like a Jenga tower mm-hmm. and um, the center of that is hollow like a volcano mm-hmm. so once we have that mount built up um, there's usually like two or three levels to it but once that's built up we cover it all in hay and the hay acts as a barrier between the wood and the earth that we then throw on top of the hay and uh, that way the earth isn't all over the wood so that when we extract it it's a little bit uh, cleaner it's not as like dirty so once it, it also allows uh, air to move you know it keeps that earth from sifting into the pile because the pile when we fire it is is not a smoldering heap it really burns fairly efficiently and our control of how it burns is um, the, um, the amount of air it has. So it's almost like an air pocket. Yeah. Or like a convection oven of some kind. Yeah. To keep that air circulating. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when visitors come to the English village, is there any remnant of this process that they can see? They can see the whole thing. They can see everything from start to finish. Be- because of the way that we... Um, it, interpret the pos- the process, um, we um, fire the pit and burn and make the charcoal and then cover it over and let it uh, cool and die out underneath the covering that it burns. Mm-hmm. In the straw and the soil. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we leave it that way over the winter and then harvest it the next uh, spring or summer so that we can do our next burn. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always a pit or the remnants of the pit for the visitors to see. Mm-hmm. And the staff in the village, uh, whether they come to Mateo and I in the forge or whether they uh, go to any of the other houses, have seen the process or been, been involved in it, and they can interpret the process from a distance. You know, uh, it's part of their memory it's part of what they can interpret as, as pilgrims that they've seen and helped with. Because when we make charcoal, um, it's, it, it's an opportunity for everyone to be involved. There's a lot of labor. And also, uh, it's a 24-hour process until it's finished burning. And so we get people to help us stay up and watch it and, um, and, and make sure that it burns efficiently. So it, it's one of those things where everybody gets into it. And you said that charcoal and mineral coal in England were used for industrial purposes, but also for domestic use. Um, the industrial use that we have in the village today at Plymouth Plantation is pretty much just the forge, correct? Yes. So I'm wondering if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about being a 17, being 17th century blacksmiths, sort of the village blacksmith is an archetype that a lot of our visitors come with. They're expecting a, a little bit of a little house on the prairie setup that you've got mm. the village blacksmith who makes everything from horseshoes to door hinges mm. and provides the town with this wide array of services. Is that a historically accurate portrayal for the 17th century as well, or how is that going to be different? Well, it's kind of interesting because I, I think there are some similarities to what you've just described, but largely it's because of the American um, experience 
because of this colonial experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and like so many other things, um, there are English tradesmen that are transplanted into the colony and they struggle to maintain their English traditions. Their craft traditions. Yes, their craft traditions, as well as, you know, just, just as well as their, their growing English things in the gardens and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, in reality, what happens in Plymouth, what we speculate happens in Plymouth, and does happen in other colonies, is the, the Smiths that arrive here may have had or not had specialties in England, but they become uh, general tradesmen when they arrive here. Um, and the blacksmith is the, the, um, the general tradesman as far as smithing is concerned. Um, the character that I play in the village, and, and Matteo is my son in the village, uh, we're nail makers. Uh, and that is a very specific trade in England but um, once they arrive here, um, the nail maker probably uh, diversified some, mm-hmm. probably became more of a what we describe as a country blacksmith, someone that does a little horseshoeing, a lot of fixing, um, w- doing a very wide variety of um, jobs. We know that a character like William Palmer ended up having uh, gunsmithing tools in his inventory when he died. Mm-hmm. And that would, in England, that would be very strange for a nail maker. Uh, but because of the colonial experience here, um, that, the, there were changes like that that took place. Necessity is the mother of invention absolutely, or adaptation yeah. yes, in absolutely. our case. Um, now, people are often very curious about why, with a nailer like the William Palmers in the village, um, and I think William Bassett is also, he comes with blacksmith's tools or he has blacksmith's tools in his inventory um, and he arrives on the fortune in 1621. But visitors are often surprised that they're still importing nails and they're bringing iron hardware over with them. So with a nailer and possibly other people with Smith training in their background, why are they importing iron hardware? Um, the, the historical circumstance is that... Um, and, and there's a pattern of colonization that gets developed. Uh, Jamestown was um, amongst the first of this type of settlement, mm-hmm. but there were also settlements up in Newfoundland um, and various other places up in Maine. And um, the idea of uh, putting about 100 people on a ship and preparing them to build a village uh, became kind of a standard. So it... It had been done before uh, when, they, uh, when the pilgrims decided to come to Plymouth. Mm-hmm. So uh, they may or may not have copied that standard, or it may have been a very natural thing to do. They provisioned themselves so that they could build a town. Um, they um, prepared themselves so that uh, they had all the materials that were necessary. And uh, one of the things that we see, which is a great source of information for us, is uh, there were actually people that published, um, there's one um, well-known document, it's called a list of inconveniences. And uh, it's, the, it's, it's a list that somebody put together of the kinds of things that you needed to bring with you 
for this colonial experience, and it includes nails and hardware and tools and provisions to keep um, an individual or families uh, for a certain period of time. Um, and so we speculate that that's what they did here at Plymouth. We, it's well supported by some of our documents. Um, and just in, um, in, in 1629, very shortly after the pilgrims arrive here, they do the same thing again up in Massachusetts Bay, and that, that is well documented and written about. Um, so um, the, we know that there was a blacksmith on the, on the Mayflower, but we also know that he died in the first winter. As so many of the craftsmen they brought with them did. Yes, that's very true. And so in the, in the second year when the fortune arrives, there's a, a blacksmith and there is a nail maker and a nail maker's son. Um, so there are three people that um, were capable of doing smithing of some sort or another. Um, and um, we don't know exactly what happened after that time. We know that um, William Bassett was fairly young and may have just finished an apprenticeship. Uh, he had a new family, and that was a pattern at the time that uh, was very common. Uh, a tradesman finished a seven-year apprenticeship, uh, got married, and went to look for work. Uh, on the other hand, William Palmer uh, was older and probably had a business and brought his eldest son with him, who um, would have inherited that business and the trade, and, um, and he also almost certainly had tools. Um, it's, it's really fascinating if, if you follow these individuals um, uh, after 1627, after the, the periods that we portray here at the plantation, a um, lot of things happen. And uh, um, and it it helps to fill out the the record of the earlier time in Plymouth. So for all the things that were being made, you talk about William Palmer most likely having a business, a pretty well established one, perhaps back in England. Uh, they're making nails or they're making iron hardware for building. Where is all that iron ore coming from? Is there um is there a large mining operation in England? Are they importing it from the continent? Where is it all coming from? Well, they're probably doing a little bit of both, but uh, England has a very vigorous, um, um, well-established uh, tradition of mining and uh, metal extraction. Mm -hmm. So, and and also they're in a period of um, of that expanding dramatically. Uh, they are building blast furnaces in England at the time, which is the the. Um, the latest technology, and uh, it, they increase production of iron, and they're able to do casting of iron and casting of cannons, and uh, they're really in a, a, as far as metal working and metal processing is concerned, they're in a, um, a period of quick development and uh, technological improvement. Um, and so, most of that, the iron that we think that they were using in Plymouth was cheap and readily had uh, being imported from England. In the raw form or, or in the already finished form? In a, in a finished form, um, they, 
one of, one of the innovations that they're developing at the time is a thing called a rolling mill. And a rolling mill uh, can process um, raw metal into uh, blacksmithing metal. Um, and it can make different sizes of stock to a certain extent. And, um, and so the, the type of stock that they probably had here was coming from um, a rolling mill. Um, but um, whether or not it was coming out of um, a mill or not, uh, once metal, once iron was made, it was forgeable um, by any smith. So I want to talk a little bit about the forge and actually the art of being a blacksmith. Um, and you said that these are apprentice trades. So can you both talk a little bit about your own training, how you came to be blacksmiths, and what brought you to Plymouth Plantation? Why don't you go ahead? Yeah, so I started, um, like most, I think, young men, <clears throat> being interested in blacksmithing because of how uh, closely associated it is with uh, magic and the medieval period and um, just sort of like the manly trade and it just seemed like something that was really exciting so I started experimenting in my mom's garage and she hated it but was supportive uh, when I would make surprisingly surprising to everybody when I would actually make something and um I started with charcoal originally and um, just kind of experimented, kept making little things and um, I liked making knives and um, was working at a farm and uh, with people who had heard of Mark, heard of his involvement at the plantation and when there was a, an open spot for the apprenticeship here. Uh, I immediately jumped on it and came here. The uh, first person I found here was Lori Danick, and she brought me straight down to see Mark. Uh, and he was in the village at the time in costume. And I was, you know, just entering a world that I had no experience in and no real knowledge of. And everything that you see in Hollywood or in the fantasy genre is just a lot of it is inaccurate or sensationalized so to actually learn the trade from someone who knows what they're doing uh was just you know it's a real honor and it's um i don't think it's a dying trade i think that's something a lot of old timers say to us that it's a dying art it's a dying trade but i've talked to a lot of blacksmiths who would tell you that it's actually on the rise and there's more blacksmiths now than there were 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Do you think the Hollywood stereotypes and the um, popularity of programs like Game of Thrones and television programming, is that helping people become more interested in blacksmithing even if it's a very superficial and and Hollywoodized impression of it. Do you think that well, brings think, people to it? I think that's part of blacksmithing but a huge portion of blacksmithing uh blacksmithing is not just you know uh, dungeons and dragons and swords and wizards a lot of it is decorative a lot of it is um modern art modern sculpture um you know we we know uh 
a professor of art, uh, George Grunemeyer, who is like amazing, and he works with sculpture and there's a lot of opportunities. I think a huge reason is the growth in the um, the hand handcraft handmade movement that's been going on for the last, I guess you could say, thirty years, but really in the last fifteen. Well, and you can also trace that back to the arts and crafts movement at the turn of the 20th century and, yeah. again, sort of the colonial revival in the 1930s. It seems like people, we go through cycles and come back to these hand trades and these um, yeah. sort of, quote, old world ideas mm -hmm. of artisanship that those ideas never really go away. Definitely. Do you, do you see this in our visitors when they come in? Or do they have that, that yearning when they come and see you? Well, we see uh, we see such a uh, remarkable variety of people that um, we see every aspect of what you've suggested. Um, there are people that come in that um, are uh, practitioners of this trade, mm -hmm. or have had some relation to it, um, th that are uh, from the U.S. But we also people see people who have become familiar with it uh, in their daily lives in various parts of the world. Um, it's surprising how, um, how recently and still uh, the craft has been, um, has been practiced uh, in places like the Caribbean or Africa or um, any, any number of places all around the world. Um, and it, coming back to charcoal, we, we hear the same thing. Uh, charcoal is still um, a viable fuel all over the world, mm -hmm. uh, um, particularly in um, in less developed countries. But um, yeah, it's very gratifying. And what you have uh, described about um, there being um, uh, waves of it, or um, it, it becomes popular, um, that has always happened, I think. And when people rediscover the trade or a trade, they uh, look around and they find that all the time there have been people continuing to practice it. And so um, that's one of the cool things is they, they, they then, um, it, revises, it, uh, it revises the interest in it. The old practitioners are um, um, looked to for information um, in a very traditional way. And uh, the the um, the trade is uh, stimulated again, so it, it never quite goes away, and there have always been people practicing it. Well, you brought us back to charcoal, so I want to bring us back to the 17th century a little bit. Um, and you had mentioned earlier charcoal. Obviously, we've talked about its industrial use with blacksmithing, but you did also say that it was used domestically. Um, one of the biggest shifts we see from a I suppose a, a civilian perspective, the families that are coming here to live in Plymouth is the fuel source that they have available to them. Um, can you talk a little bit about back in England, how were people, what fuels were they using domestically? Um, th that's, a, that's a very cool question because there, there, there are a lot of changes when they come to New England. Um, charcoal in England is almost completely an industrial fuel. Uh, it's used for metal extraction, it's used for um, uh, foundry work, um, it's used almost exclusively for that because 
um, mineral coal is um, a, a very dirty fuel, and um, they had not developed the technology to use it yet for that kind of industry. So in England, mineral coal is almost exclusively for blacksmithing. Um, but besides that, uh, it's becoming a very common fuel for household use. Um, and so in, in almost any city in England in the early part of the 17th century, um, there was extensive use of mineral coal in houses for cooking and heating. Um, so when they arrive in New England, uh, there is a dearth of, um, there's no mineral coal, mm -hmm. but there is an enormous force that they, um, they confront. And um, so everybody starts burning wood. Um, and one of the other things that happens fairly quickly is the industry that requires uh, charcoal is stimulated in the colonies, and charcoal production begins. Um, they, they find resources of iron and metals in New England, and um, the, the availability of fuel makes it uh, um, inexpensive, and they are able to be competitive in foreign markets with producing iron and other metals that they find here. So that's one of the interesting things that happens. Um, there's such a glut of wood in, in the colonies uh, that uh, it stimulates all kinds of industry uh, and, um, and it changes the way that uh, people from day to day uh, use fuel. How much wood would it take to heat a pilgrim house over the winter, for example? Rough estimate. Well, um, I, I, I would kind of turn that question around a little bit because um, in the early 17th century, um, the perspective of actually heating a house um, is, um, is somewhat misleading, I think, mm -hmm. because um, in the 17th century, the, the fire was used for cooking, food preparation, and, um, and could, um, while it was being used, um, heat the home. But um, we generally believe, and I, uh, I believe this is true, that um, they would uh, put out a fire at night. For safety uh, reasons. Yes, in yeah. a house. And so um, the fire wasn't maintained all night. The, the concept we have of heating a house was different than they mm -hmm. had. And this is before wood stoves. Yes. So mm -hmm. a wood stove, you know, revolutionized that, that pattern mm -hmm. because then you could have a fire safely overnight in a contained unit that throws out heat at a predictable, you know, somewhat predictable rate. And it was uh, Boston native Ben Franklin who right. started in sort of innovating with stoves he and was thinking one of those about heating. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a, there were stoves in Europe and England. Um, one of the patterns that they had was um, a ceramic stove. Um, but those were um, n not as functional as um, an iron stove and not as um, mobile or cheap. Um, but um, same concept. And, and 
they were very common in Scandinavian countries and uh, in uh, Central Europe, but had not um, the the idea of having a portable stove that you could put into a chimney um, was not very widespread yet. Well, I know one of the objects that our visitors often identify uh, and ask us about in the English village are the foot stoves. And the foot stoves are a wonderful Dutch innovation where you can take hot coals in a clay pot and put it in a box and put your stocking feet on top. And I know a lot of our, our role players enjoy that on a chilly November day, keeping yourself warm. Um, what other... What other uses do we see for this wood? Because we have so many visitors coming to New England in the 17th century. They wax on almost poetically about the diversity of the wood. Um, there's a passage from Mort's Relations describing arriving on Cape Cod in November. Um, they compassed, compassed about to the very fine sea with oaks, pines, juniper, sassafras, and other sweet wood. And there are so many other descriptions of these of the diversity here, what was it about these forests that had these Englishmen so enchanted? I think a lot of that is coming from a place of scarcity. Um, I think if you took like a bushman from the Kalahari and you put him in a stopping shop, I think you'd be, <laughs> I think you'd see some really weird behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think you have that going on here where these people are coming from. England, which, from what I've read, might be as high as 90% deforested in the 17th century. And they're importing wood from Scandinavia to build with because they don't have it domestically or it's not cheap enough domestically or the wood isn't of good quality domestically. Mm -hmm. So when they come here, this resource that is normally inaccessible to the working class, normally, you know, rare or of low quality. They come here and they find virgin forests that have never been felled and that are enormous by any standards. Uh, I mean, what they say in the sources is just ridiculous. I think there's a passage describing trees so wide, 10 men can't stand around in a circle and hold hands. Yeah. That, that's a big tree. It's a really big tree. And we're talking hundreds of feet tall, 100 feet, 200 feet, hardwood trees. And that that's unheard of like it's just we go to New Hampshire now and those trees seem big and straight and tall but it would just be dwarfed I think and by their perception coming from England which as Mark was saying is buzzing with industry they come here and the natives who live really lightly on the land comparatively to the English well they're not using it they're not using these trees properly, you know, and... That, that was the English perception of it. Right. So they're saying, like, you know, we're going we're gonna to do it right. Mm -hmm. They see so much uh, prospecting and exactly. opportunity coming from money. this industrially... They see money, rich in a country, way. yeah. Because that's the other thing. Money is scarce in the period. People aren't really paid a wage like we are today. Mm -hmm. You may receive your entire year's earnings in one day. For the rest of the year and you have to budget for the rest of the year and so money is something i think they'd be obsessed about and always worrying always stressing always conniving and when they see these rich resources 
it's just like today when people find new, uh, when corporations find new oil, oil rich areas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a massive boom, and then a massive bust, and I think that's kind of what's going on here. W- one of that is one of the things that um, it is somewhat of a misconception: the idea that um, the English. Uh, came to America for various reasons, but um, but almost in every case they came um, in order to profit, in order to establish a business, in order to um, um, tap the resources that were here. Mm-hmm. And in Plymouth, um, the the first boat that returned to England was uh, full of wood, um, and um, and that's that's what they did in, here in New England was tap the natural resources, um, and wood was one of the obvious and um, and continued to be throughout the colonial period. Um, on the other hand, w- one of one of the interesting things that happens is that there's so much wood that um, it frequently gets wasted. Um, we know that up in in Massachusetts Bay, by the end of the 1630s, there were scarcities of firewood around the city. Uh, they were having to go further and further abroad to find firewood. Um, in early Plymouth, there were uh, some, there were a couple of laws about uh, utilizing wood that was being wasted. Um, if if uh, a tradesman needed uh, the trunk of a tree for building with, Frequently, he would drop a tree and leave the limbs, and uh, and just the opposite. If someone needed firewood, frequently they would drop the tree and use the limbs and leave the trunk of the tree uh, because it was more difficult to process. Mm-hmm. And we know this because there were laws that uh, attempted to regulate this kind of uh, mm-hmm. use of the forest. Well, as we're talking about how people are using wood. We, we keep coming back to firewood. And before I let you guys go, I want to talk a little bit about our wood ricks that visitors see in the village. This is a very strange, to modern visitors, a very strange way to keep wood. Can you describe for our visitors and our listeners uh, what a wood rick is and why we stack wood in a big beehive shape? Well, initially, um, we were looking for a solution to a problem. Um, and, um, and that was simply supplying our uh, program with the wood that it required um, in an efficient way. And so uh, initially I, I did research on the subject and um, discovered that there were indications of um, stacking and storing wood in certain ways in England. and. Um, there was a tradition of um, building wood piles um, in various places um, that were called wood ricks. Um, And finally, um, with a little investigation, uh, discovered an an image of uh, the same kind of wood rick in in a view of uh, the college at Oxford in their, um, in the farmyard attached to the college, there was the wood pile that we were looking for. Um, 
And that was a solid English example of this kind of um, wood pile. Um, in further investigation, um, all over Northern Europe and in places in uh, Central Europe, um, the tradition continued. Um, in Germany and in Scandinavia, this kind of uh, round pile of wood stacked um, was still being done. Um, Is there an advantage to stacking your wood in yeah. the round? Yep. Yeah, it improves air circulation. And in my, I actually am building a wood rick at my place because I have a wood stove and I'm going to heat with wood this winter. So I'm building one. And one of the things I've found out by looking at the science behind it is that uh, a wood rick or a round pile, they have um, increased air circulation. And the way wood dries, it needs sunlight, but it also needs wind and air. Air is what dries and wicks moisture out of the wood and removes the water, making it inefficient fuel. And uh, having that 360 degrees allows for the most surface area to be touched by wind possible. And it's the most efficient way to stack volume. So you can fit more volume in a given space than you would if it was stacked horizontally or in towers. And the real reason is that it looks awesome. <laughs> I mean, everything else is secondary, <laughs> but it, it is more efficient. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have found, because I've burned wood my whole life um, with my family, but doing it this way, the wood that I've uh, cut and split is drying way faster than any other method that I've used. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining us on our podcast. Um, if you want to learn more about blacksmithing, you can visit Mark and Matteo in the 17th century English village as the Palmers. Um, or you can always visit us online, www.plymouth.org. Thanks for listening.